Hello, thank you for your interest in the Ocean Mind Sangha. Uh, these uh, talks are recorded live. I give them from the south of Mexico, where I live. And they usually happen on Wednesday evenings during our sit, our Wednesday sit. And we offer these talks freely. But if you would like to offer a donation, know that that is always much, much appreciated. Um, your support allows me to dedicate more time to writing and teaching about the Dharma. Uh, it supports the operations of the Ocean Mind Sangha, and it allows us to offer scholarships, especially for classes, uh, for people who might need them. Uh, if you would like to offer a donation, you can visit uh, my website at vanessasuisegoddard.org. Thank you again for your practice and your support. May the merits of these teachings benefit all beings. May these words help and not harm. May they clarify and not confuse. May they self-liberate, leaving no trace behind. Friends, when these four times are rightly developed and progressed, they gradually lead to the ending of sorrow and confusion. What for? A time for listening to the teaching, a time for discussing the teaching, a time for serenity, and a time for discernment. It's like when it rains heavily on a mountaintop and the water flows downhill to fill the hollows, crevices, and creeks. As they become full, they fill up the pools. The pools fill up the lakes, the lakes fill up the streams, and the streams fill up the rivers. And as the rivers become full, they fill up the ocean. In the same way, when these four times are rightly developed and progressed, they gradually lead to ease, joy, and wisdom. Here in Playa, as in much of the world, perhaps all of the world, uh, we've been going through a heat wave. And um, I mean, it's not the scorching temperatures you know, that they've had in Pakistan, for example, or in California. It's been in the, the upper 80s and, and lower 90s, but with a heat index, it's felt in the hundreds. Um, and with the heat has come the rain. And, you know, these summer, summer storms are not unlike the ones that I experienced as I was growing up regularly. But I think I'm, I, I wonder if I've just been noticing them more because I'm high up and I'm surrounded by glass. And so I feel uh, immersed in it, drenched in it. And because it's sunny here and because there's been so much rain, there's also been an incredible number of rainbows. I've never seen so many rainbows. I haven't seen them so frequently. Yesterday, there were three side by side.
And I was in the water and I was looking at these rainbows and I was thinking, you know, I mean, I've never seen so many. I also have never seen so many sunrises. Of course, not because they didn't happen, but because I didn't live in a place where I could. Or sunsets or moonrises or lightning over the water or these clouds that are like walls. They're huge and dark. And they're there one moment and they're gone the next. And so I was thinking, as I was reflecting on this, as I was feeling this, I was feeling, you know, that my days are filled with dayness. They're filled with fullness, which is kind of what you're, you're saying, you, you were just saying, Shaho. And it's what I've always wanted of my days. It's what I've always wanted for others. No, not always. <laughs> it's what I wanted for others the moment I encountered practice and I stepped into further into it and I saw what was possible. And so I was thinking of this and then I was thinking of what gets in the way. What gets in the way of water flowing downhill to the hollows, the crevices and the creeks, as the Buddha says. And, you know, he's, he's describing a kind of progression, right? And the creeks fill up and then they become pools. And when the pools fill up, they fill up lakes, they fill up streams, and the streams fill up, turns to, turn to rivers, and then finally the ocean, the ocean of mind, heart of life. And so when you think about, you know, what, what gets in the way of, not of this happening, but of us experiencing it that way, of us experiencing the breath, in the way Shoho described. In 2006, in the fall, in fact, so I guess 16 years ago, I became Shuso, chief disciple at Zen Mountain Monastery. And my task is the task of every Shuso, every chief disciple in Zen monasteries since they have existed, chief disciples and monasteries, has been to lead the Sangha by example, right, for a period of training. For us, it's Ango, which I thought, by the way, that we should do, the Ocean Mind Sangha. Uh, Ryusan had mentioned it, and I would like to, and uh, maybe we can start a little smaller, like with a month or something. Um, but I'm, I'm going to think about it and, and how to craft it, since we're not together a lot of the time, but then how to do it so that we could be together maybe at the end of it or something. So I'll, I'll start thinking about that. And if you have suggestions, please send them my way. So, you know, so my task was to lead the Sangha by, by example, the example of my practice, the example of my vow, the example of my willingness not to know. And I think I failed at this last part miserably because I thought I knew a lot more than I did. At that point, I had been practicing for maybe about 12 years. And I thought I knew, at least some, 
And then you're being told, oh, well, you're going to be a chief disciple. And so then you really believe that you know something. Big mistake. <laughs> Big mistake. And I have to say that's maybe one thing, one nice thing that's come with age and time. And I'm less likely to think I know. And much, much less likely to be certain. Much less willing to be certain. And so at the end of those three months of training, as chief disciples do, I had to give my first talk. Which, by the way, traditionally, there are Japanese monasteries in which that talk is uh, pre-set. You know, it's not actually an, an, original, an original talk. That was not the case with us. And um, during the previous... I was going to say week, but I think I must have started working on this earlier. Maybe it was at the beginning of that last month. I think that was, that was the case. Um, I chose three koans from the 300 koan Shobogenzo, the true Dharma I, that Dada Roshi commented on, Master Dogen's 300 koans, uh, three koans to work on. And then Dada Roshi narrowed it down to the one that I've... Um, mentioned to you before, Fayan's Eye of the Way. And Fayan is one of my favorite teachers. Um, he's known for just repeating the, his students, the student's question, um, or sometimes just repeating the question. Uh, I said that. <laughs> repeating the student's question or repeating a student's previous answer. He first says, no, that's not right. Why don't you ask me? The student asks, and then he repeats the same thing that the student said, which I think we can um, have a sense is not the same thing at all. And he doesn't do that in this, in this koan, um, but he uses a play on words that actually uh, speaks very nicely on, on you know, on, on what, I was, what I was reflecting on. And so Fayan, one day is, you know, he's probably doing his rounds around the monastery, and he opens up the cover of the well, and he sees that it's clogged with sand. And so he says to a monk, maybe his work supervisor, he says, you know, when the eye of the spring is obstructed, sand is in the way. When the eye of the way is obstructed, what is in the way? And the monk can't answer, so Fayan answers for him. The I is in the way. And I worked on this koan diligently, which is another way of saying, though I didn't know it at the time, that it worked on me. No, this, it was for the three months. It was for the three months because I struggled for three months with this koan. I sat and I sat with it, you know, I would read my teacher's commentary, I would read about Fayan, the other koans, and I sat some more, and I just could not see it. I couldn't see it. <laughs> the eye was in the way. And then the night before I was supposed to give my talk, my teacher passed me on it, effectively saying, you've seen it. But I don't think I had. 
actually. Not really. I think my teacher took pity on me <laughs> because I was supposed to give a talk the next day, you know, in front of a hundred people or so. So I should, have feel, I should at least feel like mildly confident that I knew what I was doing, right? What I was talking about, which he didn't always do. I think I've told the story that to, to other people, he's, he's, he told them, you have not seen it. The night before they gave a talk. <laughs> so you can imagine what that was like for them. So he passed me, but, you know, I realized as I spent time with this koan later, and that's, you know, one of the, the main reasons I appreciate koans so much is because they do keep unfurling with time like a good poem, like any piece of good writing, like any aspect of life. You're never done really with a koan, kind of like an artist, right? They're never done with a painting. They're never done with a book. At a certain point, you just decide you have to stop. Because in the beginning, you know, you just hear the words or you read the words and you think you understand their meaning. The well is clogged. I, I get that. But then he says, well, so when the well is, is uh, the, the eye of the well is clogged, sand is in the way. But then he says, when the eye of the way, did I say that right? When the eye of the way is, when the eye of the, yeah, of the way is obstructed, what is in the way? And the eye is the, the, the eye, the seeing eye, but it could also be the eye. And so as you spend a little bit more time with them, you realize you actually have no idea what they're pointing to, which is better than thinking if you've been doing koans for a little while, thinking that you do know what they're pointing to. That's actually harder to get past. It's better to have a sense, to, to have a sense that you have no sense of what it's saying. But hopefully then you spend a bit more time and something begins to happen. The rain begins to fill the hollows, the crevices and the creeks. You begin to be filled with the truth of Fayan in this case and the monk who doesn't understand and the well and the eye of the well. And you realize that the eye that he's speaking of is your eye. And your eye, as in me, mine. And slowly, slowly you begin to see what is in the way of your life. Many more years ago, I was still, you know, I was there, I was, I was living at the monastery. And a friend and a fellow student who was um, a quadriplegic, his name was Nenshin, and he had a special van that, that fit his chair. And he did not drive it himself. He, he always had to have somebody drive him, but, but you know, he would get onto the, the van and, and um, sit next to the driver. And so we had done session, and at the end of the week, he asked if I could uh, get the van and, and drive it over from the parking lot. 
And the van had a, a ramp, as so many handicapped, probably all handicapped vans do, that was operated by a uh, pneumatic pump. And it was a little bit of a, of a thing to operate it because you had to turn it on while the van was moving and you had to be very precise about when to turn it off so that the uh, pressure didn't get too high. And so he asked me to do this and so I just drove the van and I parked it and there was a friend who was standing outside with Nenshin as, as I parked and she says, I didn't know you could drive Nenshin's van. And without thinking, I said, I didn't know that I couldn't. So I just did it. And it was a very spontaneous moment. It wasn't hubris. You know, I wasn't being arrogant for once. I truly hadn't thought about the difficulty, about what I knew or didn't know. And so I wasn't limited by either. And I remember it to this day because it was such a clear moment of, of un, um, uninvoked freedom. So much of the time I was so wrapped up in the eye. So much of the time the eye was in the way. But that for that moment, I wasn't limited. And so the Buddha says, friends, when these four times are rightly developed and progressed, they gradually lead to the ending of sorrow and confusion. What are those times, four times? A time for listening to the teaching, a time for discussing the teaching, a time for serenity, and a time for discernment. And this is from the Duti, uh, Dutiakala Sutta. I really need to learn some Sanskrit. I'm probably butchering the, on Pali, I'm probably butchering these. And that first time, you know, the time of listening to the teaching, I was really thinking of it as a time of, of receiving. And as, the, as, as we would often so often say before the Dharma discourse, you know, they're, they're dark to the mind, but radiant to the heart. And, and so the heart needs to be receptive. It has to be open. And so you know that well-worn Zen story of a, of a student who goes to see a teacher and the teacher invites them, you know, for, offers them tea. And so the teacher is busying themselves, you know, she's putting on the water, she's measuring out the tea leaves, she's setting out the cups. And as that's happening, the student is going on and on about this sutra and that sutra and this teaching and that insight she had when she was contemplating this or that teaching. And so when the tea is ready, the, the teacher picks up the pot and starts slowly pouring into the student's teacup. And she pours and she pours and she just keeps pouring until the water is overflowing, spilling over the table and onto the student's lap who jumps up and says, what are you doing? Don't you see that the cup is full? And the teacher says, I do see. It's very full. And how do you expect me to teach you? But this knowing isn't this, this um, yeah, when we have a sense that we know, isn't just that overt kind of arrogance. It is also every bit 
of knowing. You know, every time your partner or your child or your parent looks at you in a certain way and you think automatically, oh, I know what they're going to say. I know what they're thinking. We don't even necessarily say it in those words, but there's this sense of, I know. It's every time we think we know what we're capable or not capable of. It's every time we say, without recognizing this is what we're doing, this is a sunrise. This is a compliment. This is a piece of cake. This is a bigot. Not because there aren't sunrises or bigots in the world, but because there's another way of being with these and all things, which Shoho so nicely described in her Dharma glimpse. So in Buddhism, being with is really just being. And you can't be a thing or a feeling or a person when your cup is filled to the brim. But then there's this other kind of filling, right, that this sutra describes. Listening to the teaching, discussing the teaching. And there's a time for serenity and a time for discernment. And I, I had never quite seen this grouping before. And it sounds rational and it sounds progressive. Therefore, the Buddha gives that simile of the rain filling these different, these progressively larger bodies of water. But I think of it more as, 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 as immersing myself in a body of water, right? And with each step, the water is rising higher until it's all around me and it's below me and maybe it's above me. And I cannot tell where I end and it begins. This is how to listen to the teaching. And that is, this is why it's a little, it's extra hard to do it on Zoom, to, to be fully, completely there. It's, it's harder. It's harder, it's challenging regardless. But to have to get past this, this barrier, it's, it's, definitely, it's definitely a barrier that can, of course, be a gate. And so I have a way in which I prepare for these evenings, right, and to, and to give this talk. I hope that you have a way as well to receive it, to receive the teaching. Because this, this, this all-encompassing immersion in the Dharma is how the teaching permeates us, right, and our lives. And then the Buddha uh, points to how to discuss the teaching with others or with yourself, how to spend quiet time with what you've heard, and then how to discern what you've heard. And so it's not a matter of logic, 
although logic is helpful, is not a matter of knowing all the technical Buddhist terms or being able to quote this or that sutra. It really is a matter of becoming the thing that you're trying to understand. Right? Do you understand? So if at any point you're concerned, oh, I don't understand this term, I don't understand this teaching, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. This is not about understanding in the usual sense. It is not about making sense in the usual sense. That is why I so love that story of the bricklayer. Things by Ursula Le Guin. Because faced with the end of the world, whether that's his world or the world or this moment, he has this vision that there's something out there. There's these islands. And he decides, I'm going there. Isn't that exactly what happens when we turn to practice? We cannot possibly know what we're getting into. And that's a good thing. Because otherwise we might not do it. <laughs> we might just run the other way. We can't possibly imagine what it will feel like, what it will look like, what we will feel like as we do it. And something in us says, I'm going there. Something in us knows, as he knew, that just past the edge of what we can see is liberation. But how does he know that? How do we know that? How do we decide to do something that doesn't make sense? Does it make sense to sit down day after day on a, what, four by something mat and count your breath and think that that's going to free you? It certainly did not make sense to build a brick road going straight into the ocean. But it wasn't about making sense. And he knew that. Just as the Buddha knew, after all of the teachings, he had, not just earnestly, but 150% wholeheartedly immersed himself in and come to the conclusion, this isn't it. These have been very helpful, but they're not the way deliberation. How did he know? And what was the way? Now the bricklayer had no way of knowing where the road was going, how far it would take him. He had no way of, of ensuring that the, his work would pay off. And he didn't have a teacher. He didn't have anyone to ask to reassure him, everything will be okay. But you know, when people say that, it may not be. It may not be okay. That is actually a possibility. And that's okay. 
And every morning he would go down to the shore and he would slip into the water and he would take a brick and he would lay it down. And then he would take another, guided by nothing but trust in something he couldn't see, he couldn't touch, he couldn't explain. Like a Zen student. And we cannot stand on the shore and measure how many bricks or how long the road is going to be. I mean, if we did that, we would never begin. And we would conclude rightly, this is impossible. And standing on the shore, the thing is, it is definitely impossible. But the view changes once you're in the water. And that's the thing. You have to get in the water. And I love that, that story. I love that image because... I feel it's a very good, very true uh, representation of our lives. You know, we're each laying down a road as we're walking it. And the road is submerged in water, and there's wind, and there's rain. We can't see clearly. Or maybe it's running through the middle of a desert, or a jungle, or it's thick with brambles. We have to chop. Or is nowhere to be seen, because where we're standing is dark. <coughs> and so what can we do? we we'll take a brick and weigh it in our hand and set it down carefully, carefully before we step. And then we test. Does it hold our weight? And if it does, we take another brick and we set it down. And the thing is, your path is not going to do, look like mine even though every single one of us, at least who has a practice, has to go through the work of building that path. Every single one of us has to do our own path. And mine doesn't look the same as yours. That's why it's so uh, pointless to compare. You know, people still say to me, oh, you know, I was in such and such a retreat and it looked, everybody was, was, was just doing it. I was the only one having a hard time. How do you know? Because everybody's sitting quietly? You cannot know what somebody is living in their quiet of their body and mind. And even if you did, it wouldn't matter because you still have to do your thing. So it doesn't matter. Better, really, I mean, if you want to compare in any way, better just to, to remind yourself, well, somebody in this room, if you're in a room full of people, somebody in this room is struggling right now, guaranteed. And if not in this moment, half an hour ago or tomorrow, somebody will be struggling the same way that I'm struggling. <clears throat> But the only way 
really the only way that we can do this path is one brick at a time. And if we're lucky enough to be able to stand at the end and then look back, we'll see that it looks nothing like we thought it would. Maybe just a little bit like we thought it would. Of course, because the imagined pales in the face of the possible, especially when the possible includes <coughs> practice and liberation. And so these four times, listening to the teaching, discussing the teaching, serenity and discernment. So I said, the first is a time to receive. The second is a time to reflect. The third is a time to be still. And the fourth is a time to investigate. Which describes very nicely the way that we train. Because first, we do have to empty our cups so we can hear the teachings. And you would never pour a glass of, of uh, a cup of tea into a glass that had orange juice right, without washing it first. And so, of course, you're, you, you, you can't just erase your experience. You can't ex erase your, your history, your karma. But you can hold it in such a way that it doesn't color what next you put into that glass or that cup. And then we contemplate the teachings. You know, what was said? What did I hear? How does this work in my life? Not later, when I'll have more time, when I'll have better circumstances in which to practice, but right now, which is the only time that I have. And for that, we have to still our body and mind so that the words can sink in, can permeate. And we may have to hear them a hundred times, a thousand times, so that on the thousand and one, we actually hear it. In that um, simile for the first jhana, this deep state of meditation, of the four, the eight, really, the eight jhanas that the Buddha uh, entered into before his enlightenment. Uh, each is uh, accompanied by a simile. And the first one, the first one is the one that I, I always remember, I think, because of its, its nature. You know, it, say, it says that it's like a, like a skilled bath attendant. If they were to pour soap flakes into a metal basin and then sprinkle them with water and you're kneading them into a bowl so that the, 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 the bowl of soap is permeated by moisture. 
is encompassed by moisture, suffused by moisture inside and out, the sutra says. In the same way, one drenches, steeps, saturates, and suffuses one's body with the rapture and happiness born of seclusion, so that there is no part of one's body that is not suffused by, by rapture and happiness, which is really speaking of the factors that accompany the jhanas, you know, that, that you are so immersed with breath, for example, that your, your being is suffused with a, with a kind of bliss, with a kind of happiness. But even if you, you haven't experienced that, that's okay. Let your body be suffused by breath. And it is active, it's engaged, it's not just happening. You, you're, you're doing this. Later, the, the effort falls away. But here, you're definitely, you're engaged. And then we investigate. And I really love it, you know, when you, when you write me after a talk, um, or you bring up something that we discussed during a study in one of our sessions. And some of you say, you know, I'm, I'm slow. These things have to sink in. Take all the time that you need. Be time. Be that question in time. But when you return days or sometimes weeks later and you ask me something or you bring up something that we talked about before, it lets me know that you're listening. You're actively listening and that you're actively working to bring these words to life in your life. And so really, when we speak of study, it's, it's, it's not accurate if we think of study as, I go to the book, I read the chapter, I get the information, I close the book, I'm done. Right? I mean, we all know that that is not what transforms. Meister Eckert said, the eye with which I see God is the eye with which God sees me. And it's kind of nice that it works that way. It's kind of convenient that it's nowhere else. It's nobody else's eye. The eye of the way is the way. It may look like an obstruction. It may feel like an obstruction. And it is also the way. How is that? How do we go from obstruction to gate? Here's a, a hint. This poem is called uh, Sun Goes Up. And the poet, by the way, was five years old when she wrote it. Her name was Hilary Ann Farley. I love the juice, but the sun goes up. 
I see the stars and the moon star goes up and there always goes today. And the sun loves people, but one always dies. Dogs will die very sooner than mummies and daddies and sisters and brothers because they'll not die till a hundred and because I love them dearly. I think actually what I wrote after doesn't say it better than that. <laughs> so. Thank you for listening. Uh, if you would like to listen to more talks, you can visit my website at vanessasuisegoddard.org. And if you would like to offer a donation, know that there always much, much appreciated. Uh, they allow me to dedicate more time to writing about and teaching the Dharma. They uh, support the operations of the Ocean Mind Sangha, and they also allow us to offer scholarships for people who might need them. Uh, so we always, always very much appreciate your practice and your support. Thank you.